0: How do non-radical Muslims explain the many verses in the Quran that urge violence and killing of non-believers or infidels, like Christians? How can we have a conversation about the Quran with our Muslim friend without it becoming confrontational? Well, coming up, we'll introduce you to a concise guide to the Quran. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host and guide, a noted Old Testament scholar and frequent Israel traveler, I'm John Geiger, and maybe you really wonder, what does God truly care about? Obviously, if we could somehow list it out, it would be a long list, but there's one thing that we often forget that he cares about, and that's the Jewish people. We see throughout scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation.
1: Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, Visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift.
0: And right now we're going to take a look at current events all based in the Middle East, stories that have been unfolding the last seven days or so. With Rosh Hashanah this past Monday and Yom Kippur coming up this Wednesday, we are in the middle of the Jewish High Holy Days. And that also means increased tension between Israel and the Palestinians. So have Israel and the Palestinian Authority been able to work together to hold these
1: tensions in check? Well, you know, John, there has been some cooperation, but it's been spotty at best. In his U.N. speech, Israeli Prime Minister Lapid called for a two-state solution and said an agreement with the Palestinians was the right thing for security, the economy, and the future of all their children. Unfortunately, Palestinian Authority President Abbas followed by accusing Israel of destroying a two-state solution. He said he wants peace, but then delegitimized Israel's right to exist, calling it a colonizing power and denying any Jewish right to Jerusalem. Abbas was playing to the Palestinians back home, perhaps in a bid to keep from losing control to Hamas in the West Bank, but in doing so, he missed an opportunity to become a statesman for peace. In the meantime, Israel's trying to provide economic opportunity for Gaza in exchange for security. They okayed 1,500 more entry permits for Gaza workers, raising the total to 17,000 toward an eventual goal of 20,000. But at the same time, Israel's cracking down on terror cells in the West Bank. In the past week, they captured a Hamas cell behind a number of shooting attacks. They also killed four terrorists who had carried out multiple attacks and who were planning others. They seized dozens of weapons being smuggled into the West Bank from Jordan. Hmm. Many of Israel's arrests in recent months have concentrated on Nablus and Janine, which have become areas where Hamas has focused on building up terror cells. Israel closed the crossing points from the West Bank for the High Holy Days, and they'll remain closed through Sukkot. The good news is that the violence within Israel itself, at least up till now, has been largely held in check, though There have been clashes on the Temple Mount and in other parts of East Jerusalem. You know, John, no, it would only take one mass casualty terrorist incident or one unfortunate killing of civilians during an Israeli raid to cause this violence to explode. This is a good time for, I think, all believers to follow David's words in Psalm 122.6 and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, Charlie, zooming out,
0: uh, way out, I, I ask myself, How is it that the Palestinian Authority has been so successful in peddling the notion that they're interested in peace with Israel, but the truth is they're really interested in eliminating Israel? Why why is that not more clearly seen by the rest of the world?
1: I think it's because of the media. Uh, The media focuses on those words peace, and they miss the significance of the other things that are being said, uh, which really are behind the whole problem. Well, October
0: is also the month Israel has said it will bring its new offshore gas field online were Israel and Lebanon able to resolve their border issues and will Hezbollah allow any
1: deal to go forward. Well, an agreement was prepared by the US negotiator, though it hasn't been finalized by either country. Now, for those who might not have been following the story, the dispute revolves around a 330 square mile area in the Mediterranean claimed by both countries. Lebanon also claims the gas field Israel's about to bring online is in the disputed area while Israel claims the field lies within its internationally recognized economic waters. Hezbollah has threatened to attack the production vessel should Israel begin extracting natural gas from the site, saying their missiles are locked on. Obviously, the agreement, when approved by both countries, ought to help resolve this situation. Israeli Prime Minister Lapid made it clear that Israel will begin extracting gas from the field very soon, with or without an agreement. And it's not clear if Hezbollah will honor the agreement should one be reached. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, warned that Lebanon will pay the price if the talks are sabotaged or if Hezbollah launches an attack. And U.S. Secretary of State Blinken issued his own warning, saying the U.S. will not be able to stop Israel from retaliating against Lebanon if Hezbollah attacks. Now, the best way forward is for Israel and Lebanon to settle their boundary dispute and for Hezbollah to honor that agreement. However, when it comes to Hezbollah, it's never certain they'll act in anyone's best interests except their own or the interests of Iran, their primary sponsor. Charlie, how defensible is
0: this new offshore gas field?
1: Well, Israel has uh, its own version of an iron dome, a floating iron dome system to protect it. It has uh, submarines that it has in that area. It has other vessels. Uh, The real question is, what would they do if Hamas tried to simply overwhelm the system By launching hundreds of rockets at the same site, and uh, we hope that we don't have to find out.
0: You're listening to the Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, working us through a list of stories all based in the Middle East from the week. Well, the start of Israel's new year also brings an annual report from their Central Bureau of
1: Statistics on population numbers. So, what do those numbers show for the past year, Charlie? The most significant finding is that Israel's population right now stands at almost 9.6 million. Of that number, just over 7 million are Jewish, that's 74%, and just over 2 million are Arab, that's 21%. The remaining half million are classified as belonging to neither of those two groups. Israel's population grew by 187,000 last year. One reason for that growth is a large influx of immigrants, 63,000 to be precise, and Two-thirds of those came from Ukraine and Russia because of the war. Now, according to the Central Bureau of Statistics, Israel's population should reach 10 million sometime in 2024. Another set of numbers were released related to tourism. Following a total closing of the country for almost two years, tourism has started climbing back toward pre-COVID levels. From January to May, 785,000 tourists entered Israel. Now, that's up from 400,000 for all of the previous year. And the total number this year then climbed to 1 million by July 10. And the tourism ministry estimates that through the remainder of this year, they'll have upwards of 2.5 million tourists. Now, that's still way down from the 4.9 million back in 2019, Mm -hmm. but it's six times the number of last year. And the Hotel Association of Israel expects the total number to rebound to 2019 levels by next year. More people and more tourists. That's Israel's hopeful forecast for the new year. But if COVID taught us anything, John, it's that we need to append the words Lord willing to any prediction. Well, researchers
0: in Israel and the U.S. have found a new way to diagnose Alzheimer's without having to perform PET scans or cerebrospinal fluid analysis. How significant is
1: this latest discovery out of amazing Israel? A simpler way of diagnosing Alzheimer's could be extremely helpful in two ways. First, it helps eliminate the other more invasive ways now used to diagnose the disease and Second, it could lead to more early diagnoses and treatments for those with the disease. Now, what makes this so important is that they can diagnose Alzheimer's by looking for beta amyloid plaque and abnormal tau proteins in the retina of the eye. Evidently, changes in this part of the eye reflect pathological processes in the brain. In the experiments, patients were asked to swallow turmeric capsules. A Turmeric attaches itself to the plaques of amyloid beta, When the retinas were examined a few days later, the yellow spice was found to stick to retina cells in the Alzheimer's patients, but Hmm. it wasn't found in the healthy control group. The other non-invasive tests of the retina were also found that reflect the early development of Alzheimer's. Larger tests still need to be conducted before the means can be implemented clinically, but right now we know there's no cure for Alzheimer's. But early detection, perhaps as part of an annual eye exam, could help individuals gain earlier access to treatment to slow its progression. And that would definitely be another helpful medical advance coming out of amazing Israel.
0: Thank you, Charlie. We're looking forward to today's program. In just a moment, a question about how you and I can have conversations with Muslims about their Quran without it becoming confrontational. And then we're gonna look at questions and answers. Finally, we'll land at a devotional. Charlie, what's that all about? Where are you taking us today?
1: Well, we're wrapping up a series we've been doing on Matthew 13, seven stories with a purpose. And today we're going to be focusing on the last of the stories, the one Jesus told about the net.
0: Hey, we'd love to hear from you in a quick email. Here's how you connect the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. Up next, a concise guide to the Quran here on the land and the book. As Christians, we think we have a pretty good handle on what the Quran teaches, but do we? What have we overlooked or misunderstood? Coming up, a concise guide to the Quran. It's a great conversation, worth hearing, and this is The Land of the Book. I'm John Gager, thanking you for joining us for segment two. Right now, let's head to this thought about sharing the love of Christ with a Muslim friend. Christians and Muslims can agree on a lot of words, a lot of concepts, a lot of ideas. But among them is not the word grace. In fact, grace doesn't even exist in Islamic teaching. What are we to do with that as Christians? How do we convey grace? Let's ask Samia Johnson, who's with Call of Love Ministries. What about grace, Samia?
2: When you mention that God's salvation for us is through grace alone to a Muslim, they don't know what to do with this. They don't understand it. Because Muslims use the word grace for anything that's a materialistic gift. Like they say, bread is grace from Allah. Health is grace from Allah. But they don't understand it on the spiritual side. What they have that's closest to grace is mercy. But with mercy, it stops when Allah chooses who he has mercy upon, Mm -hmm. and to how much, what level it is. There might not be eternal punishment, but local punishment or temporary punishment. When we explain grace to our Muslim friends, we need to say that grace is the undeserved gift of salvation and pardon that God gives me through faith alone, not works. Faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for my sin. Grace is something I do not deserve, but God gives it to me anyways because he loves me. When some Muslims grab this for the first time, Mm. they are amazed that there is such a God who gives me the gift of eternal life for free.
0: Christian Words to Clarify, one of the chapters in Samya Johnson's book, The Guide to Loving Your Muslim Neighbor. More at calloflove.org. How do non-radical Muslims explain the many verses in the Quran that urge violence and killing of non-believers or infidels like Christians? How can you and I have a conversation with a Muslim friend about the Quran without it becoming confrontational? Well, welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I'd like you to meet today's guest. Ayman Ibrahim is Professor of Islamic Studies and Director of the Center for the Christian Understanding of Islam, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He was born and raised in Egypt and has taught in various countries in the Muslim world and in the West. His articles on Islam and Christian-Muslim relations have appeared in the Washington Post, Religion News Service, and First Things, among others. Ibrahim has written several books, including A Concise Guide to the Quran. Welcome to The Land and the
3: Book. Thank you, John, for inviting me. I look forward to this conversation.
0: You know, I have been told by some Muslim background believers that one of the most effective ways to get Muslims to question their faith is to have them read the Quran. I've heard most Muslims don't really read it, and they don't know how dangerous some of its content really is. What's your experience?
3: Well, for Muslims in general, the Quran is viewed as the inherent, infallible word of Allah. That's for the vast majority of Muslims. So they don't really approach it in order to learn more about Allah. They approach it as if it's a mystical power. It's a huge power, metaphysical power. So even the book itself for Muslims is a source of blessing. And we need to understand this about their approach to this book. So the book in general for Muslims and for non-Muslims is not easy to fathom to comprehend it has lots of changing topics there is no clear context for some passages so for Muslims and non-Muslims it's not easy to read but Muslims still view it as the powerful word of Allah and part of its powerful aspect is that it's not easily understood now how do they understand it? They need the imam of the mosque, the leader of the mosque, to interpret it. So most Muslims see the Quran as very difficult to understand, and they rely on the interpretations of the local leader of their house of worship. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, many Bible-believing Christians wonder— why Muslims don't question the teachings of their book more. For example, the Quran appears to teach that a Muslim can simply divorce his wife, then sleep with someone a few days, and then divorce her and go back to his wife, and everything is fine. In other words, it appears that the Quran allows for infidelity as long as it's done by the letter of the book. Why don't Muslims, especially women, have a problem with this?
3: Well, some do have a problem with this, but still, it brings me back to the first comment that Muslims view this book, the book that we call today the Quran, as so holy, so sacred. It's unmatched. So even if they are uncomfortable with some of its statements, they still view it as the mandated, the prescribed commands of Allah. And that's why they just don't question it. Now, if it is the reality in their practice of everyday life, they deal with the Quran, they still may have some questions. And it is a good thing for a non-Muslim, when interacting with Muslims, to bring kindly and nicely these questions up front. And just to ask a Muslim, did you think about this? Have you considered this? Yeah, so.
0: Well, you know, you, you then uh, raise the question, if I'm going to have this conversation about the Quran with my Muslim friend, it presupposes that I have read it. So you're saying it's a good idea for Christians to read the Quran?
3: It is a good idea for you to read the Quran, for Christians to read the Quran, because basically you will understand more about what Muslims, what our Muslim neighbor reads, or at least the hopes to follow, but in reality, the reading of the Quran is not easy. Not a task that will be smooth because there are many different words, many uh, switch between topics. Mm-hmm. So yes, glance through the Quran, go through it at least to some extent to understand what Muslims read. But a book like what we are talking about, A Concise Guide to the Quran, will give you light to the various aspects related to the Quran as the holy book of Islam.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the book because uh, as I've looked at it, I love the way it's laid out. Very logical, very easy to follow, easy to read. And if this is maybe your first exposure to truly understanding the Quran, You could do no better than a concise guide to the Quran written by our guest, Ayman Ibrahim, who, by the way, was born and raised in Egypt and is taught in various countries in the Muslim world and in the West. Well, how do non-radical Muslims explain the many verses in the Quran that do urge violence and killing of non-believers or infidels like Christians? That's just something you can't really tiptoe around.
3: This is a very good question, um, John. Uh, So let's distinguish between different kinds of Muslims. Muslims are not all the same. And I speak about this in my book, uh, A Concise Guide to the Quran. You can say that the vast majority of Muslims around us are the cultural Muslims, the nominal Muslims, who are Muslims because they were born Muslims, Mm -hmm. but they really don't know any sophisticated ideas about the religion. They just want to live and let people live, and they don't understand a lot about the basics of Islam either, you know. The second group among Muslims are those who are religious, who are by nature seeking to follow the commands of Islam and the Quran, and they are, to some extent, followers of the tenets of Islam, but they still want to understand Islam and apply it based on the culture they live in so some of these religious muslims live in america for example but they are not veiled like women they are not veiled why because you know this is the culture here and uh, they might just interpret the veil command in the quran well you know what it was for a certain era it's not for today so they live islam based on the culture surrounding Mm -hmm. them now Some people in the heartland of Islam, like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, they read the commands of Islam and the statements of the Quran, and they want to follow and apply it by the letter. And here you can find them, still religious followers of Islam, but they still would like to say, well, you know what, a command of killing someone, maybe it was suitable for the seventh century. It's not today, because Islam is a religion of peace. So you see these religious followers of Islam, that's the second category of Muslims. These are people who want to live Islam as the culture the discourse around them dictates. Well, the third group still is some radical Muslims who read the Quran and say that this Quran is valid to every time, every place, and should be applied as written and here you can find adherents of isis qaeda and some radical muslims book so we need to distinguish the three categories of muslims and understand that muslims are not all the same in terms of applying and interpreting their sacred texts
0: what's your guess as to how many fall into that third category the category that would want to interpret everything very literally, uh, the ISIS folks, the violent folks, how many of those are there in this world?
3: From all my interaction with Muslims, and I, I, I would encourage our hearer not to go about percentages here, but I would say truly honest that the vast, vast majority of Muslims you meet will fall into the first category. They are just nominal, cultural, they cannot change their religion because it's the heritage they received from their parents. So I would say it's the vast majority of Muslims around us, and we should be loving to our neighbor by bringing the good news of Christ to Mm. all those around us. Most likely, our listeners would encounter the first category of Muslims. I'm not saying they will not find the second or third, but at least we need to be ambassadors of Christ as we bring the gospel of hope to everyone around us.
0: That's Ayman Ibrahim, who has written a concise guide to the Quran. His articles on Islam and Christian-Muslim relations have appeared in the Washington Post and other places, and we're glad to have him today on The Land and the Book. Well, you mentioned this idea of being kind, so how can we have a conversation about the Quran with our Muslim friend without it becoming confrontational?
3: So the good news is nothing can be considered that much confrontation to Muslims because Muslims love to talk about their religion in general. So if you meet a Muslim and you don't talk about religion for two minutes, I promise you <laughs> they will talk about religion because Muslims are by default ready to talk about religion. And they will try to convert you to Islam, like exactly what Christians are trying to do as well. The point is, we need to understand that Muslims are not hesitant to talk about religion. Now, confrontation or not confrontation is a category that mostly Western people think about. Like when you meet a Western in the street, you talk about the weather, the soccer, and... Muslims don't find talking about religion is that bad. They, they actually like to talk about religion. Even in their daily conversations, they bring the deity in a conversation all the time. So I would encourage our listeners here, when you see a Muslim, don't be intimidated. Don't think they are going to harm you. Just to begin a conversation about, so where are you from? How is your life going in the United States? Uh, What are some of your struggles? Tell me about your family. And the more we talk in a personal conversation, the more we will have a better ground to cover other important matters, including religion, including the eternal life, including how to be coexisting here in a wonderful way that, you know what? I have good news to tell you yes. and I cannot wait to tell you about it. So that's, that's how I would go for it.
0: Plenty to think about. And I want to say thank you to Iman Ibrahim who's written A Concise Guide to the Quran. Appreciate your visiting with us today.
3: It's wonderful to have been with you and I look forward to more conversation, John. Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. And a link to his book, A Concise Guide to the Quran at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer returns with more questions, yours next. We're back with questions and answers here on The Land and the Book. Welcome to segment three of the broadcast. Charlie, what's next, of course, is segment four, your devotional. How do you come up with the ideas that you do for creating
1: these devotionals week after week? Uh, I keep a uh, book beside me, and as I'm reading through the Bible, I'm looking for items. You know, what jumps out at me, and what might someone be interested in? And then I just go back to that the well of uh, ideas to find those particular devotionals. All right, we'll look
0: forward to that. But right now, it's questions and answers. And before we get there, we have to think about this question. What does God really care about? Obviously, that would be a long list if we were to take the time. But there's one thing we often forget that He cares about, and that's the Jewish people. We see throughout Scripture that He cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation.
1: Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special e-book entitled, Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles written by Life and Messiah staff provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. Now, to receive this free 30-day devotional, visit lifeandmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. As we dig into
0: today's questions, uh, just a quick note up front, number one, those questions are welcome anytime online. You can email us at thelandandthebook@moody.edu. Thelandandthebook@moody.edu. Observation number two, those questions can be about not just scripture, but prophecy, the Middle East itself, and, and we're going to be all over the map today, starting with this question from Paul, who asks, why do Muslim fighters and jihadists have their faces covered? I don't ever recall seeing their faces in pictures or on the news.
1: Well, and I've actually never heard someone provide an explanation, so this is my guess, but it's, I think, a fairly reasonable one. I think they're doing that to avoid being identified. Police and other government agencies have used photos and videos to record events, and they do it to identify key leaders and participants. And CCTV, along with facial recognition software, has now automated the process and made it more pervasive. So, I believe many cover their faces simply to protect themselves against being recognized or identified. It's the same reason bank robbers and bandits in the past wore masks. Now, it's also possible some of the costume is a throwback to the head covering worn by those in the past who traveled through the barren parts of the Middle East with threats of blowing dust and dirt and sand. They'd wear a head covering that could be wrapped around their faces to filter out the dust and dirt. And that same style of cafe is still worn today, which makes it easy for them to use it and cover their face. Robert asks, in a
0: previous devotional, you talked about David's adventure at Nob, which is very disturbing to me. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. Was the tabernacle there? Why was the
1: showbread there, especially if the rest of the tabernacle wasn't? Yeah, and to answer this, I need to start in a weird place. Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, Jeremiah was telling Judah they were trusting in the temple as if it was a giant talisman and that would protect them, they thought, against uh, harm. And God warned the people to remember back to what he'd done to the tabernacle in Shiloh. In fact, he says, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now we'll put some passages together. When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, that's 1 Samuel 4 and 5, evidently they also went to Shiloh and destroyed the town. Before that happened, the priests and the workers grabbed the remaining items of furniture and carried them off in various directions to various locations Uh, apparently to keep them from being captured as well. Uh, That's why the table of showbread ended up at Nob. Remember in 1 Samuel 21, David uh, goes to Nob, and that's where he finds the table of showbread. Uh, The ark was eventually returned from the Philistines, but it ended up in Kiriath Yaarim in 1 Samuel 6. We learn about that. And then David finally brought it from there to Jerusalem and housed it in a temporary tent, and that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 6. And the actual tabernacle constructed by Moses and the bronze altar from the tabernacle, well, they were taken to Gibeon. Uh, We know that from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, because that's where Solomon went to offer a sacrifice after he became king. So for about 100 years, Israel was without a central place of worship as the parts of the tabernacle were scattered. Another question. It seems like we have pretty good evidence that Herod the
0: Great died in 4 B.C. in the springtime by the Jordan. That means that Jesus had to be born sometime between 6 or 5 B.C. Am I right? What do you think?
1: Yeah, the best historical evidence does suggest Herod the Great died around 4 B.C. And most then place the birth of Jesus sometimes between uh, 6 and 4 B.C. A book I've referenced on this program in the past, uh, which I really like, is called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold Honer, And he has a chapter in there on the year of Christ's birth and he believes Jesus was born likely in late 5 B.C. or very early 4 B.C. Herod then died later in the spring of that year. So how was Jesus born you know, four or five years before Christ, before B.C.? And the simple answer is that the chronology we now use to divide B.C. and A.D. was developed in the 17th century by Bishop James Usher. He did a good job using the sources that were available, but uh, his reckoning on the time of Christ's birth was off by a few years. Now, rather than then going back and redating everything in our calendar, it's just been simpler to recognize this glitch in the reckoning and end up with Jesus being born a few years B.C. This listener says, I know of one scholar who thinks the Antichrist
0: will definitely be Italian. I've heard a different view that suggests he will be from the Middle East.
1: Do you have a position on this interesting issue? Yeah, and really, I don't have a definitive view on the origin of the Antichrist. You know, some feel he has to be Jewish to be a counterfeit messiah. I don't believe the Bible demands that, though it's at least possible. I do see the Antichrist coming from the revived Roman Empire, but that doesn't necessarily require him to be Italian since the Roman Empire straddled most of the Mediterranean basin. I do have a problem with the Antichrist being Middle Eastern or Muslim. Uh, My main difficulty is it appears that the Jewish nation is going to make an agreement with him and place their trust for security in him. Uh, It seems that that's what Daniel 9 27 is saying. I find it hard to see Israel trusting in or depending on any Middle Eastern or Muslim country or leader for its safety and security. I also have a problem with such an individual fitting Daniel's description of the Antichrist uh, because he says in Daniel 11, this future leader will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, nor will he regard any god but exalt himself above all. And that doesn't seem to fit a Muslim leader because uh, the key to Islam is that there is no god but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And it seems like the Antichrist is not going to be following that.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Charlie Dyer, is taking questions. Yours, I'm John Geiger, intrigued with what you're wondering about, like this question from Sharon. If God forbids making graven images, how come Solomon set the brass sea on 24 bull statues?
1: Well, I think the key is is to look carefully at what God prohibited in the second of the Ten Commandments. He said, you'll not make for yourself an idol, a graven image, in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or the waters below, and you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So the command prohibited making some physical representation of something that was going to represent a god and be worshipped. Now, while that applies to any physical representation, including statues, some today would say, and even photographs, the intent of the command was to prohibit making an object to be worshipped as a god. And I actually see several instances in the Old Testament where God commanded images to be made. In these cases, the image was not intended to represent a false god. Now, these include uh, the cherubim on the mercy seat, uh, the cherubim that were woven into the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies, and perhaps most importantly, the bronze serpent placed on a pole in Numbers chapter 21. In each case, God commanded the representation to be made, and the image wasn't considered an idol. But in fact, later in Israel's history, people actually began viewing the bronze serpent as an idol, and they burned incense to it. And in 2 Kings 18, that's why King Hezekiah ordered it to be destroyed. So all that to say, God did permit some physical representations like the bulls in that sea of bronze, as long as they weren't intended to be worshipped. And uh, that's what I think was happening with the bulls in Solomon's temple. Mark listens to us on
0: Moody Radio Cleveland, and he says, it's my understanding that the synoptic gospels use Hebrew reckoning for time beginning at sunrise or 6 a.m., The Gospel of John uses Roman time starting at midnight and noon. So in John 4, verses 6 through 7, we read of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at the well at the sixth hour. To be consistent, this should be, it seems to me, about 6 p.m. But some say she came at noon in the heat of the day to avoid being harassed or mocked by other women. Different commentaries disagree on the time. Do you have insight you can share with me?
1: Well, and actually, I have very little to add to, to what you said, because I think your analysis is right on target. It does seem the writers of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the Jewish method of reckoning time, which divides a day between sunrise to sunset. So the sixth hour would be six hours after sunrise. Uh, and assuming the sun rose about 6 a.m., that'd be about noon. Now, that method of reckoning is consistent throughout the three gospels. The gospel of John does stand apart. He does use the Roman method of computing time which is the same system we use today. That is, they divided a day into two 12-hour segments beginning at midnight and noon. So the sixth hour in John's gospel with this woman at the well would either be 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. Now, there have been a lot of good sermons preached on how she came in the heat of the day, but I think she probably was there around 6 p.m., and it seems to me all the details of the story, even if that doesn't help us preachers, Preach a better sermon. <laughs> thank you, Charlie. And thank you for sharing these great
0: questions with us. Yours is welcome at the land and the book at Moody.edu. The land and the book at Moody.edu. Up next, well, it's a favorite segment from any, Charlie's Devotional. Keep it right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. listening to the land of the book whether that's online or on air we're glad to have you along our teacher and host is Charlie Dyer I'm John Gager admitting that in my later years I've kind of gotten into fishing just a bit because out where we camp Charlie you're guaranteed a fish inside of two minutes I'm not kidding you not a big fish and if that's what you're into then you're probably disappointed but I don't mind throwing my hook in and getting a fish inside of two minutes kind of fun
4: Yeah,
1: Jesus and the disciples love to fish, too, and uh, sadly, I'm not in that same camp with Jesus, the disciples, or you, John.
0: (laughs) But I think your devotional has everything to do with fishing. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, this look at what it's like to go to the Holy Land and have your whole life rearranged around Scripture. Check out this Holy Land experience.
4: My name is David Lipson from Odessa, Texas, and I just want to say thank you to Charlie for your knowledge and your work over the last 30 years. It's awesome. In my study of the scriptures, you've added so much more to what I knew before. Just going back and reading the Bible in the past week, it's helped to bring the locations and the people and the circumstances more to life. That it means so much more to me. It's at such a, at a deeper level than I've been able to understand in the past. That I think in the future, I'll be processing that information at a new quantum level from where I've been in the past. And, and something else just strikes me as a biblical principle When over and over throughout the Testaments, it says God wants our obedience, not our offerings. And we've been to the sites that had the mixed-up pagan offerings, and it talks about a horned altar. Now we know what a horned altar looks like, and what He really wanted was the obedience of their lives to serve His kingdom, and it was awesome. Thank you.
0: So if I say fishing, maybe you're thinking special tackle box and gear and line and Charlie, I think you're thinking something a whole lot more primitive
1: and fundamental than that. Maybe a a net? Uh, That's exactly right. And not just any net, a special net. But but I'm getting ahead of myself. I need to start by by saying, and if people have listened to our program, they know this, I hate fish and I hate fishing. Uh, About the only kind of fish I really like are fish sticks. And my wife says they shouldn't even legitimately be called fish. She's right. Now, I I do like Pepperidge Farm goldfish we buy for the grandkids when they visit. But somehow I don't think they count either. (laughs) I suspect not. Yeah, I trace my aversion to fish to the time I went fishing with my grandfather. He was passionate about fishing and less charitable toward a fidgety five-year-old who was more interested in throwing rocks into the pond than in sitting quietly and watching a bobber float on the surface. Uh, We've reached the end of our seven stories with a purpose, the seven parables told by Jesus along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus shared his first four stories to the crowd gathered along the edge of the water. The parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, and the two shorter parables of the mustard seed and the leaven were all spoken to the multitude and all four focused on the kingdom of heaven. They illustrated the different responses to the message of the kingdom. They explained why opposition would continue, and they described how the kingdom would continue to grow and expand. But then Jesus left the crowd and went inside a house with just his disciples. The final three parables were directed to this select group of followers. Last week, we explored the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Both parables stressed the value of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven was worth more than anything else in life. And now it's time for Jesus to share with his disciples his final story with a purpose. And the background of this story moves from the fields around the Sea of Galilee to the sea itself. Many of the disciples were fishermen, and the story Jesus began sharing had the ring of reality in their lives. They could hear the lapping of the water, feel the rough texture of the net in their hands, And smell the scent of fish that still lingered in the bottom of the boat. This was a story for them. When we think of fishing, we usually envision someone with a pole or a fly rod in his hand, casting a line across the water or over the side of a boat. But that was not the way fishermen caught fish on the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes they used a cast net, throwing it over the side of the boat, As the net fanned out, the stone weights attached to the perimeter pulled the net toward the bottom, hopefully trapping some fish inside. But at other times, groups of fishermen would use a drag net. Think of this as a net hundreds of feet long, weighted on the bottom with stones. Fishermen on shore would hold one end of the net, while others on a boat hauled the other end out into the sea and then looped back around toward shore, forming a giant horseshoe. They then pulled the two ends of the net towards shore, trapping everything inside the ever-narrowing space. Eventually, the net was pulled completely to shore, filled with a variety of fish. Many fish in the Sea of Galilee were good for eating, but the waters also held some, like catfish, that were considered unclean. The fishermen had to sort through the catch, separating the fish that could be eaten from those that were prohibited. So when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the sea and caught all kinds of fish, the disciples could think back to those times they had rowed out into the lake, letting down their dragnet. And as Jesus described the end of the process as the fishermen sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away, they found themselves nodding in agreement. Yep, that's the way it's done. But what's the point of the story? What's the purpose of this parable? Jesus didn't let his disciples wait in suspense for the answer. This is how it will be at the end of the age, he said. He goes on to explain that the fishermen in the story refer to angels, and the separation of the fish is the very same event he described earlier in his parable of the weeds, as the angels separate the wicked from the righteous. The righteous go into the kingdom, while the wicked will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus then asked his disciples, "Have you understood all these things?" And they said they had. And perhaps that's a good place to pause and ask you if you understand what Jesus was saying. We live in an age when people focus so intently on the love of God that they fail to notice the other side of the coin, the justice of God. God has defined what's right and what's wrong. What's pleasing And what he finds offensive. Many don't like to talk about eternal judgment, but the fact is it's a reality. And it's so serious that God was willing to sacrifice his own son to pay sin's penalty so we don't have to experience the consequences of our disobedience. But ultimately, that involves a choice on our part. We either accept the forgiveness God has offered or we reject it. But the time of judgment Jesus was describing is coming, and our choice to place our trust in Jesus as our personal Savior, or to reject Him, has eternal consequences. Jesus ended this parable with a final illustration. Some see it as an eighth parable, but I see it more like a summary illustration. The Old Testament revealed much about God's future kingdom program for Israel. It's the old treasure referred to by Jesus. But his teaching on the time elements of that kingdom, the opposition that would arise, and God's insertion into history to establish his kingdom was the new treasure in his illustration. Jesus is saying the teacher who has been fully instructed is able to bring from his storehouse of knowledge truth about the kingdom from the Old Testament as well as from the teaching of Jesus. As Jesus gathered with his disciples, he taught them the importance of God's kingdom Like a hidden treasure or a priceless pearl, it was worth sacrificing everything to possess. And he concluded his stories by reminding his followers that a day of separation was coming, a day when God would sort out the righteous from the wicked. The righteous will be allowed to enter the promised kingdom, but the wicked will be sent into eternal punishment. And the wise disciple is the one who takes all this to heart. And my friend, with that word of caution, We must leave our study of the seven stories with a purpose, but I trust you've listened and responded appropriately to the message Jesus shared because the eternal consequences are too great to ignore. And if by chance, listening here to Charlie
0: Dyer's devotional, you're saying to yourself, boy, those consequences are eternal and I haven't settled this thing and I do have questions. Why not get some answers? Why not talk to a friendly volunteer who knows Jesus? who can help you know Jesus, pick up your phone. I urge you right now, call 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. What happens when I call, you say? Well, a friendly volunteer answers the phone. It's somebody who knows Jesus, as I say, and is glad to answer questions that you might have. 888-NEED-HIM is the number to call. Thanks for doing that. Well, our time is gone, always goes by too quickly, but nice to have you with us here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.